0: Dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Doctor Bones.
1: You go, nineteen forties band singer. This is the hour of Doom
0: and Bloom.
1: That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a template of timeliness in a trembling world, and the number one show about medical preparedness, only because it's the
0: only medical preparedness podcast. Unique. May- maybe. <laughs> unique,
1: probably. I don't know. I know. If you know of <laughs> another one, let me know. And who am I? I am Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones. Of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. Hey, this is my wonderful co-host.
0: Yes, Nurse Amy, Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife.
1: And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so bright, I've thrown away all my nightlights. Absolutely <laughs> unnecessary. Oh, she yes. absolutely glows.
0: Yes, you can read with my head. <laughs> <laughs>
1: On this show, you're gonna get the conventional medical wisdom, but you're also gonna get the unconventional medical wisdom. Plus, at no extra charge, the deranged rants of a man falling off his rocking chair. But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're gonna hear it right here. But first, you gotta listen to this.
0: All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice. For anything other than post-apocalyptic settings, we strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
1: Or don't, if the apocalyptic end of days doesn't faze you. But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the blankety-blank-blank really hits a fan, (laughs) and the hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Well, don't look at me. I'm just a lone voice on the interweb. It's you, Mac. You and I both know that when it's least expected, you're going to be elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff, and why not get some quality medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy could tell you where you find some.
0: Absolutely. Store.DoomandBloom.net
1: Well, we're in beautiful Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where we hang out during the fall. And the fall colors have been popping here. They have been really beautiful, especially here on Ski Mountain.
0: Absolutely. Well, we drove through the park getting here, and in certain areas, it's funny, it's it's peak, and then you go a little higher, and maybe they haven't changed yet, and then you go lower again. It's just, it's amazing, and then through the weeks that we're here, different areas go to peak, and then the leaves start to fall, which is actually really pretty when the leaves start falling like snow oh yeah we love that and the sound of it's just just beautiful
1: it's one of the brightest years in recent memory
0: yeah yeah it's been really really pretty we need more rain though in Gatlinburg we have some today but my goodness the rivers and creeks are really low Remember we saw some little fish yesterday that were sort of trapped in small areas?
1: I know. I don't know what happens to those poor things.
0: Well, if it freezes, they're going to be in deep trouble.
1: Well, anyhow, we love it here. Lots of nice nature hikes and surprise occasional visits by local black bears.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll talk about
1: bear encounters later on. I just want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way, ranks a whopping 4.8 out of 5, on Amazon, over 2,800, 2,800 reviews, is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net.
0: And we even have a spiral version on store.doomandbloom.net.
1: That's right. Hey, today I'm going to start off by talking about something even medically prepared folks rarely think of, and that's dental issues. You might be surprised to know that an effective survival medic requires a working knowledge of dental problems. Few who are otherwise medically prepared really devote much time to learning about dental issues, however, and procuring dental supplies. But poor oral health, that can negatively affect the work efficiency of members of your group in survival settings. Some cases of dental disease actually lead to serious illness. And when your people are not at 100% effectiveness, chances for survival, surprise, surprise, decrease. Anyone who's had to work while simultaneously dealing with a bad toothache, for example, they can tell you exactly what the effect was on their productivity. If someone's teeth hurt badly, concentration suffers. Matter of fact, their mind can only focus on the pain in a lot of cases. As a medic, you need to learn basic dental hygiene, how to evaluate dental disease, and the procedures that may be able to keep your people at top efficiency. If your only concern is a few days without power due to a storm, maybe you shouldn't worry much about the risk of dental problems. A long-term event, however, that's an entirely different story. History tells us that problems with teeth take up a significant portion of the medic's time if dentists aren't available. During the Vietnam War, medical personnel noted close to half of those who reported for sick call came with dental complaints, not medical complaints. In a long-term survival situation, you may find yourself in the role of dentist as often as you are in the role of doctor or nurse. A survival medic's philosophy should be that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This thinking is pretty apt, honestly, when it comes to your teeth. By enforcing a regimen of good dental hygiene, you're going to save your loved ones a lot of pain and yourself a lot of headaches. Now, I'm going to talk about procedures that are best performed by a dental professional with experience. Duh. Unfortunately, you're not going to... Have such a person in your party, most likely, so I'm going to offer some information here that's going to give you a basis of knowledge that'll help you deal with some dental issues off the grid. The anatomy of the tooth is pretty simple. The part of the tooth that you physically see is called the crown, and hidden below the gum is the root, which resides in a bony socket known as the alveolus. Teeth are anchored to alveolar bone with ligaments, just like you have ligaments holding together your knee or shoulder. The tooth is composed of different materials. Enamel is one. That's the hard white external covering of the tooth crown. Enamel is mostly made up of calcium phosphate, and it's the armor that protects deeper structures. Dentin is a firm yellowish material underneath the enamel. It's composed of many microscopic tubes. When enamel is lost, heat or cold travels through these tubes to cause sensitivity. Pulp is a softer tissue in the center that's surrounded by the dentin. The pulp contains blood vessels and nerve endings, and it's considered the living part of the tooth. When the nerve dies, the tooth dies. A normal adult mouth has 32 teeth, most of which replace baby teeth by age 13. They're comprised of incisors, there are 8 of those total, the middlemost 4 teeth in the upper and lower jaws. So what you're looking at when you first open your mouth is those buck teeth, those are incisors. Then there are canines, there are 4 of those total, and that they're the pointed teeth that are just outside the the incisors up and down these are sometimes called cuspids then there are premolars which are behind those and there are 8 of those total remember i'm talking about 4 up 4 down they're the teeth between the canines and the molars sometimes we call those bicuspids then there are molars you have 8 of those total they're flat teeth in the rear of the mouth and then you have wisdom teeth or third molars and these are teeth that erupt later probably around age 18 in a lot of people they're often surgically removed to re- prevent displacement of other teeth. Different teeth have different purposes. Incisors and canines are for cutting, while molars are for grinding. Let's talk about the basics of the dental exam and instruments for the survival medic. Because your hands and your patient's mouth are colonized with bacteria, while well, every exam should begin with a good hand washing and putting on a mask and gloves. I shouldn't have to say that all instruments should have been thoroughly cleaned or sterilized between patients. If an instrument has touched blood, consider using heat in the form of boiling water or steam from a pressure cooker, as I've talked about many times before. Alcohol, very hot water, or bleach solution may be sufficient in some cases where there is no major amount of blood involved. Have your patient open their mouth widely so that you can investigate the area. A dental mirror and a dental probe, also called an explorer, are good tools to start with. Does the patient have any problems opening and closing their mouth? Are there sores at the corner of their mouths, which is sometimes seen in nutritional deficiencies? These are questions you should ask yourself as you evaluate the cheek linings, the roof of the mouth, the tongue, the tonsils, and the back of the throat. Are the gums pink, or are they red and swollen? Do they bleed easily when you touch them with the probe? Can you see cold sores or canker sores? Now, contrary to popular opinion, these are not the same thing. Cold sores or fever blisters start off as small blisters, and they're caused by herpes type 1 virus. They mostly affect the hard gums and the roof of your mouth. Canker sores, well, they're different. They're less certain in origin. They're shallow ulcers that affect soft parts like the inside of your lips and cheeks, the floor of the mouth, and the underside of the tongue. If you ever notice this, which one of these do you have? Do you have canker sores or do you have cold sores? Other soft tissues to check out include the tonsils on either side of the back of the throat. Are they enlarged? Are they, or the back of the throat, reddened and dotted with pus? That could be signs of tonsillitis, or strep throat. Once you've evaluated the soft tissues inside the mouth, it's time to examine the teeth. Using your dental explorer, carefully look around for any obvious cavities. A cavity is going to appear as a dark pit where bacteria has demineralized the enamel. Search for fractures, missing fillings, or other irregularities. Even if there is nothing visible, however, there may still be serious decay between teeth or below the gums. Patients with this issue may often have pain, otherwise called toothache. So one of the most common problems you're going to deal with as a medic in tough times is going to be toothache on the part of your family or survival group. Treatment of a toothache starts with finding the bad tooth. In many cases, it's going to be very obvious by the presence of the dark decay that has demineralized the enamel and exposed the dentin. That's called a cavity or caries. Even if your examination doesn't reveal an abnormal area, identification of a problem is still possible. You touch the teeth in the area of the person's toothache with something cold. The bad tooth will be the most painful or the most sensitive to that touch. Now, a tooth that is probably beyond hope is going to cause significant pain when you touch it with something hot. When you touch a suspicious tooth with something hot, it will continue to hurt for 10 seconds or so. That's even after you remove the heat source. This is because the nerve has significant damage to it. Now the basis of modern dentistry is of course to save every tooth if at all possible. This technology is advanced so far that many damaged teeth can be salvaged with root canal procedures, for example. In a root canal, infected pulp and nerve tissue is removed all the way down to the base of the root. The space is then filled and sealed with a special rubber material called gutta percha. You obviously don't have the experience or the materials to do this, and we have to go back to what we used to do in the old days. In the old days, the main treatment for a diseased tooth was extraction. By the old days, I'm not talking about Roman times, we mean the middle of the 20th century. Survival settings were probably going to be thrown back to an era where extraction was the mainstay of dental care. If you delay extracting a severely decayed tooth, it's likely going to get worse. And decay can actually spread to other teeth or cause an infection that could spread to your bloodstream even and become life threatening. The good and bad news is that 90% of all dental emergencies can be treated by extracting the tooth. Some tooth decay can be treated by placing a filling. As long as there's no evidence of an abscess or a collection of pus there, pain is not constant and severe, and the tooth is not tender to heat or a light tap, it might be a candidate for less drastic measures than extraction. The purpose of placing a filling is to stop the decay from progressing deeper into the tooth and to stop air, food, and water from entering the area that's lost to protective enamel. To place a filling, you want to examine the extent of the decay. You use your probe and dental mirror to explore the tooth in question. You look for weak demineralized areas on the sides and the depth of the decay. If the decay has reached a nerve, this may be pretty painful. Local anesthetics like lidocaine would be useful, but it's going to be scarce. Instead, consider applying some clove oil to the affected cavity, but not in the surrounding gums or other soft tissues that can burn, and that will help deaden the pain if lidocaine is unavailable. You want to keep the area dry. Temporary filling cement is going to last longer if you place it in a dry area. So you want cotton rolls, small gauze squares. These are helpful if you place them in the cheek area. That's known as the buccal side, B-U-C-C-A-L, of the damaged tooth. If you're treating a tooth on the lower jaw, you want to place an additional roll on the tongue or lingual side. That is L-I-N-G-U-A-L as well. These need to be replaced when they're saturated with saliva. So you need a good supply of these, and also you need some small cotton pellets, which you can use with tweezers to dab the tooth itself dry. You can also dry the tooth by putting blasts of air on it from a bulb syringe, the kind they use to suction out a baby's nose, that's another way you can remove moisture and make it easier for you to work. Now you're going to need more than just a, a few of these. In our dental kit we have 50 cotton rolls, 50 cotton pellets, and actually probably more than that. You're going to at least need that many to deal with more than one person who has dental problems in your group. You need to also remove the decay. You can't just fill it with the decay still in there. That's going to be pretty difficult because the way they do that is by using a drill. So. In austere settings, it's going to be pretty difficult to remove all decay completely. It's important, however, to make sure that you make the best effort to do so, especially decay that are on the edges of the cavity. If you can do this, you can prevent food and bacteria from entering the tooth. A dental scraper is helpful for this purpose and to eliminate thin edges that wouldn't hold the filling material well. You can also use something called a spoon excavator. A spoon excavator, which we also have in our kits, removes the softer decay from the inside of the cavity. And Without anesthesia, I have to tell you that this procedure will be a little bit painful. Now you want to make a temporary filling. For improvised temporary fillings, you take two or three drops of oil of cloves, essential oil of cloves, that's also called eugenol, E-U-G-E-N-O-L in dental circles. You mix it with a small amount of zinc oxide powder until you make a paste. Now once you mix this, roll the paste into a ball, and apply it into the space. Fill it as completely as you possibly can. Alternatively, you can make a roll of this material and cut off portions as needed, because you never know if you have the exact right amount, so you might want to make a little bit more than you think you might need. The mixture hardens while the anesthetic properties of the clove oil help relieve the discomfort. If the cavity is large, this may take more than one application. Be aware that decay will return in any areas without enamel that's not fully covered by the filling material and has not had all of the decay removed. You want to remove any extra filling material with a scraper until the person can close their teeth normally when they bite. This is important as too much can cause undue pressure on the repair when biting or chewing. To identify excess cement, use carbon paper or paper on which you've rubbed a pencil. Have your patient bite down on it and the carbon or graphite will stain the excess filling material on the tooth dark. Then you can scrape that off until smooth and the bite is comfortably even. You want to use your probe to remove any loose material nearby and have the patient rinse with water. If the cavity is deep and close to the pulp, they have used things like dycal, D-Y-C-A-L, that's calcium hydroxide. That's used by dental professionals as a cap to protect the nerve before placing the cement. There are pre-mixed commercial temporary cements such as Dentemp or Cavit, C-A-V-I-T. These are widely available alternatives. For a somewhat longer fix, you might consider a commercially available product from India known as Prevest, P-R-E-V-E-S-T, Fusion Flow, F-L-O. It's a composite material that's effective but must be cured with a UV dental curing light that's also available online to harden. If a cavity is located that abuts onto the next tooth, some kind of barrier should be placed between the two teeth. In modern dentistry, a very thin band is used around the tooth that provides support during the procedure and protects the gum. This barrier is removed after you're done working on the tooth. Should be noted that we're talking about temporary measures for survival scenarios. Until modern dentistry becomes available again, you'll likely have to replace temporary fillings multiple times. The amount of time that they'll last really depends on how much stress is placed on it. There are other methods using longer-lasting materials, such as glass ionomers and others, well, these have been used by the military in the field and on humanitarian missions. I want to talk a little bit about dental abscesses. A dental abscess is a collection of pus caused by an infection in or around the tooth. It's usually comprised of dead white blood cells, bacteria, debris, all casualties in the battle, your immune system waged against the infection. In most cases, the pus accumulates at the base of the tooth. Bacteria enters the tooth through a defect in the tough enamel eats all the way into the inner pulp. Once a pulp is infected with bacteria, the nerves in the tooth become inflamed. The inflammation leads to a bad toothache due to damage to the nerve. If the inflammation isn't treated, it leads to what we call an abscess. This particular type is called a periapical abscess because the pus accumulates at the base of the tooth, at the base of the root. usually indicates that the tooth is no longer viable. When severe gum disease leads to an accumulation of pus, that's called periodontal disease or a periodontal abscess. In this case, the infection started alongside a tooth rather than in it. This means that the tooth involved may not be badly damaged, although the nearby bone may be. There are signs and symptoms of tooth abscesses that you need to be able to identify. Pain, of course, often throbbing in nature and radiating to different nearby structures like the jaw. Sensitivity of the tooth to cold and heat. Sensitivity to pressure from chewing or simply pressing or tapping on the affected tooth. And then, of course, there are more generalized symptoms like swelling of the face, foul breath, fever, and generalized gum inflammation. Usually, a white head will appear at the site of the abscess. There would be difficulty swallowing or even breathing in the really severe cases. A tooth with rotting pulp may become dark in color, actually, without exhibiting all these symptoms that I've just mentioned. They may have less symptomatology, but in the end, that's it for the tooth. Dental abscesses are treated by several means, depending on the situation, and some of these may be options for the medic off the grid. Antibiotics is one. Sometimes antibiotics are prescribed, especially if the infection has spread past the abscess to the jaw. Those, it's very important in that case. Drugs in the penicillin family are mostly used by dentists today. These aren't always successful, however. An abscess tends to wall itself off in such a way that oral antibiotics often can't reach it. Now, having said this, antibiotics may be helpful in combination with some of the other treatments that I'm talking about. One of them is incision and drainage, or IND. Performing an incision and drainage procedure with a number 11 or number 15 scalpel and lots of irrigation is usually necessary to drain the abscess. The patient will usually feel immediate relief from the pressure that's caused by the collection of pus. So you can get rid of that pressure by popping that abscess at the area of the whitehead that may form there. That may help at least with the discomfort. After draining, you would need to thoroughly irrigate the abscessed area with salt water solution, saline solution. That'll clean out remaining bacteria and debris. Now, sometimes they put a small rubber drain or a small Penrose drain, P-E-N-R-O-S-E. Look it up. I've talked about it many times on this show. That's cut to fit and placed to help drainage after the procedure. This method's most effective with periodontal abscesses. With a periapical abscess, honestly, probably won't save the tooth because the nerve has been so badly damaged. Then, of course, there's extraction. In the past, as I mentioned, 90% of dental emergencies were dealt with by extracting the tooth. This is what the medic may have to rely on as their definitive treatment for teeth that are damaged by abscesses or other problems. Of course, your best strategy is to prevent tooth abscesses. You should identify family or group members with risk factors and control, correct, eliminate these risk factors whenever possible. One, of course, and maybe the main one, is poor dental hygiene habits. Make sure that they brush your teeth and they floss. You don't have to necessarily use a toothbrush. You've run out of toothbrushes in a survival setting. Many people take a twig, a green twig, and they chew the end of it until it gets all fibrous and then they use that as a toothbrush. Also you can use just let's say a piece of cloth and your finger to just wipe the teeth vigorously to help get rid of some of that bacteria and plaque that is decaying there. Some people also can use their dental scraper to eliminate the plaque that may be at the base of the teeth where the gum is. Smoking actually affects your teeth negatively, so you want to make sure people stop smoking. They may not have tobacco after a while, and if you're in a survival situation, you just make sure that your people stop smoking. Of course, people with previous dental procedures, if they've had a bad history, they're the people you need to watch out for because they're probably going to have more. And people with medical conditions are more prone to dental disease, things like diabetes, acid reflux, weakened immune systems, a diet high in sugar, feeds the bacteria, so you definitely want to make sure you limit excessive sugar intake. People that have dry mouth may also have problems, that's often seen in the elderly, and people that are in certain medications like steroids, things like that, they tend to also have problems some people have the tendency to gnash or grind their teeth together. That's known as bruxism, B-R-U-X-I-S-M, and can cause trauma that leads to dental abscess. A mouthpiece to provide a barrier between the teeth may be useful, even if it's just a pink eraser that you had when you were a kid. For, for nighttime bruxers, however, that's a little difficult because you could possibly swallow it or you could possibly have it go down the wrong pipe, so there's a special mouthpiece used for that. In some cases, teenagers may develop painful infections caused by partially erupted wisdom teeth. This may occur in gum tissue over a tooth or at a point where there's pressure against the molar next to it. Antibiotics may relieve the infection, but sometimes excess gum tissue has to be removed to allow space for the tooth to grow out. Extraction of the tooth may be required in many cases. Wisdom teeth that give you trouble are particularly prone to developing abscesses. Matter of fact, they've evaluated Egyptian mummies and they found them to have tooth abscesses oftentimes, and these have caused a great deal of bone destruction in the jaw and is thought to possibly cause the death of some of the people involved. I'll talk about how to actually perform a tooth extraction in a future show. This show is sponsored by tomatoes. Tomatoes, those roly poly fruits that everyone thinks is a vegetable. Put them in your salad or wait until they get really ripe and throw them at your favorite politician. Tomatoes, available at purveyors of fine produce everywhere. Okay, let's talk about something else. Tropical disease experts are now predicting a return of this historically devastating disease, Yellow Fever, to the United States. Yellow fever causes 30,000 deaths annually in South America and Africa, but it hasn't been a problem in the United States for a very long time. There are concerns, however, that the deadly disease is going to be the cause of future epidemics right here in the good old USA. There have been no active outbreaks of disease, honestly, since 1905, but there have been other tropical diseases that have made appearances that you would think wouldn't occur in the United States. Earlier this year, several cases of malaria turned up in Florida. Mosquitoes have recently tested positive for West Nile virus in Texas. Zika, dengue fever, chikungunya viruses, these have all been identified locally in the past few years. So what's yellow fever? Yellow fever is caused by an arbovirus. That's a virus that's transmitted through the bite or sting of an insect. The particular arbovirus that causes yellow fever occurs in the flaviviridae family. And in this case, the vector is a bite from the mosquito known as Aedes aegypti. Once the virus has entered the human body, symptoms may occur within three to six days. Not everyone has symptoms, however. Those who do experience headache, muscle pain, and nausea and vomiting, that can be severe. Luckily, in most cases, symptoms subside in three to four days. Some more good news. Surviving the disease usually means lifelong immunity. An unlucky 15% of the patients, unfortunately, they do progress to a more serious second phase, usually after what you th- would think would be an apparent recovery. These people start to develop high fever and inflammation of organs like the liver and kidneys. Liver malfunction leads to a condition called jaundice. That's a yellowing of the skin and eyes, hence the name yellow fever. Bleeding in the GI tract in the late stages leads to vomiting blood, sometimes black in appearance. If that happens, well, you start having death rates that... Range from 20 to 60 percent due to the organ failure and bleeding and things like that. A very bad way to go. American history is peppered with yellow fever epidemics that reached as far north as Philadelphia, where 5,000 deaths were recorded from the disease in an outbreak in 1793. Most outbreaks, however, occurred in southern seaports like New Orleans, Galveston, Charleston, or along the Mississippi, places like Memphis or Vicksburg. The New Orleans epidemic of 1853 killed almost 10% of the city's population. Back then, the disease was sometimes referred to as Yellow Jack. That was the name of the nautical flag the ships arriving from the Caribbean had to raise to indicate a quarantine had been imposed. Some now-forgotten yellow fever epidemics killed more U.S. citizens than more famous disasters of the time, like the Great Chicago Fire or the San Francisco Earthquake. But that was then, this is now. So why are experts becoming more concerned about small upticks in diseases that are mostly seen in equatorial regions of Africa and South America? Why now is the question, right? Why is this the issue? The health establishment blames climate change, population explosions, poverty, and increasing urbanization. There are El Nino events that mean warmer temperatures and more rainfall, which are good conditions for mosquitoes to breed. Growth spurts in places like Miami, Tampa, other warm-weather cities mean many more potential victims than in previous eras, especially in poverty-stricken areas that have poor mosquito-control policies. A factor you won't hear much about is what authorities refer to as shifting patterns of human migrations. So you know what that is, code for the current crisis in illegal immigration. People that are crossing the border from at-risk areas are rarely vetted medically, or any, any way, I would think. And as such, it stands to reason that some might bring infectious diseases up north into the U.S., where American mosquitoes can bite them and start transmitting these diseases to other people. Health authorities worry correctly that we are unprepared for an outbreak of yellow fever, which has no known cure and kills a larger percentage of its victims than COVID-19 did. Mosquito control programs aren't based on a national standard. They're usually administered through the county. That means that the quantity and quality of resources may vary greatly from place to place. The main concern is that U.S. citizens aren't vaccinated against yellow fever, nor is the vaccine part of the national stockpile that we have, what's called the Strategic National Stockpile of Medical Supplies. Therefore, the entire population, just about, is vulnerable to it. A vaccine is available, but it uses live virus. It's expensive, it's not made in large quantities, and it can have serious effects on those with weakened immune systems. That means a sizable yellow fever epidemic could run rampant throughout the entire U.S. population before the government can effectively combat it. Some people believe there's hope. In response to the threat of emerging infectious diseases, the White House established an Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. So far, it has concentrated essentially on influenza, coronavirus, and other known pandemic illnesses department could easily tackle, if they wanted to, mosquito-borne infections if it was so directed by a vigilant administration. I'll let you decide how vigilant that administration has been. Yellow fever is common in 13 Latin American countries, 34 African countries. It's not yet a problem in 21st century America, but that means that we have an opportunity. We can prioritize a plan of action for an outbreak now, and yellow fever might be just a bump on the road, not the end of the road, for a lot of U.S. citizens in the future. Hey, sometimes we answer questions from our audience, our viewers, our readers, and our listeners, and today's no different. so here we go. This week's question comes from Alan in Texas, who wants to know about joint pain, arthritis, and gout. There's a lot of manual labor involved in making a homestead out of my eight acres. My right shoulder and especially my elbows have arthritis and sometimes makes hard work very painful. I'm 59 years old, but still in good health, save for the occasional gout flare-up. Alan, our bodies are a miracle of engineering. They really are. But like any machine, we have moving parts that wear out with use. At your age, you could certainly have muscle pain. But your shoulders and elbows might also have arthritis, osteoarthritis, a deterioration of joints that comes with age that can also occur as a result of injuries. Homesteading is a lot of work, and you probably can't rest your aching joints very long without getting things out of hand at your retreat. That's a shame because rest is probably what they need. Of course, while modern technology is available, you should have my suspicion of osteoarthritis confirmed by x-ray at your local hospital. Since you have gout, there's always a possibility that it's a factor, although gout usually affects the feet. Now, for those who don't know, gout is a condition that inflames joints and even destroys them by depositing uric acid crystals in them. Once you've confirmed that it's osteoarthritis, You might consider taking anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen on a regular basis to cool the joint down. Doctors can also inject steroids directly in joints to give relief. Now, if you're looking for natural relief, though, a capsaicin cream or an arnica salve can certainly help, although you'll need to apply them pretty regularly. Use moist, warm compresses to help with stiffness, especially in the morning. Now, various glucosamine supplements... Our popular glucosamine sulfate preparations have more evidence for their effectiveness than glucosamine hydrochloride. Take about 1500, milligrams once a day on a regular basis paired with chondroedin sulfate. Chondroedin sulfate 800 to 1200 milligrams a day. This combo has been shown to possibly slow progression of some arthritis conditions. Now to control your gout, lifestyle and dietary changes may be helpful. Avoid alcohol. Reduce how many uric acid-elevating foods you eat. Now, these include liver, red meat, herring, sardines, anchovies, kidney, beans, peas, mushrooms, asparagus, and cauliflower. And for goodness sake, avoid fatty foods. There's a lot more to all this than that, but it's a good start to get you feeling better. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden. I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us. Send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
0: Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.